Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Vero Beach Church of Christ online worship experience. My name is Peyton, and we are continuing our Sermon on the Mount sermon series. And today we're talking about the pretty easy subject of judging other people. You know, whenever it comes to Matthew chapter 7, which we're entering into this morning, uh, you get to this famous passage where Jesus talks about judging other people. And it's one of those passages that even non-Christians are pretty familiar with. They'll say something like, you know, isn't there somewhere in the Bible where Jesus talks about not judging people? And they use it almost as a weapon against Christians or believers. This is often seen in like celebrities, right? They'll make some kind of mistake and then they get caught out for it and they come on and they're sad, you know, their sad video and they're voicing their grievances and they're repenting and they'll say, but you know what? Jesus says not to judge. And so I don't want anybody to judge me either. And maybe that makes them feel better. I don't know. You know, this word judgment and this topic of judgment, it should actually be pretty special for Christian and close to our heart because of a recent study that came out, I say recent, 2007, but a study that came out by the Barna Research Statistic Analyst Company. So they, uh, they collect statistics and they sent out a survey to 10,000 non-Christians asking them the question, why are you not a believer? And the responses to that survey blew people away because the primary reasons that non-Christians are not believers were not evidential reasons. It wasn't because like, you know, I can't believe in the existence of God or the validity of the Bible or the Christ myth that the attributes of Christ are borrowed from other religions. No, it wasn't evidential reasons. It was moralistic reasons. So they were given a list of words trying to label Christians and the reasons they are not Christians themselves. And there's three words that bubble to the surface. The very first one, judgment. They are judgmental, right? And so um, they, they believe that Christians hold a, a standard of life and they have a slitted view of other people. And they often will um, give slander or condemnation or judgment on other people who do not fit their standard. So that's word number one. Word number two that bubbled to the surface in the survey was hypocritical. So Christians have this standard of life, um, standard that they expect all people to live by, but they themselves do not live by that standard. And then finally, the third word is uh, Christians are anti-gay. And so there is a select group of people who have, um, in essence, a target on their back when it comes to Christian judgment and Christian uh, condemnation. Now, you might hear these words like I do, judgmental, hypocritical, and the likes. You might think, you know, I don't feel like that fully describes me. And you might think of other Christians in your circle, maybe people you go to church with, maybe your family members. You might, you know, that doesn't really describe them either. Like, I know I'm not perfect. I know I have my weaknesses. I know I make mistakes, but overall, like we feel like we're fairly decent people. We at least don't deserve labels like judgmental and hypocritical and the likes to define us. But then you think a little harder and you think, okay, you know, Thanksgiving's right around the corner or Christmas is coming up and I'm about to get with my family for these meals. And you know, my uncle Steve, which I'm convinced everybody has an uncle Steve, right? My uncle Steve can, you know, he can kind of be that way. He makes these smart little comments and 
Um, you know, he's kind of judgmental on people. And then you think of like your your Facebook friends, right? Um, you think of your uh, the people's pages that you watch, and yeah, they can post things that are a little more hypocritical. They can be a little more judgmental, and and then you're there, right? You you begin to realize how where this perception comes from, and oftentimes. Whenever I consider these words, what comes to my mind is a, is a minority of very outspoken Christians, or at least they're claimed to be Jesus followers, um, a very small group that carries around picket signs, that wears, uh, you know, sandwich boards, and they stand on street corners, right? You know the ones I'm talking about. They go to very public places. They're very loud. They get a lot of attention. And they, they shout out their proclamation and their judgment on just bystanders, right? If you live here in Vero Beach, we have them on the beach all the time. If you live in a city or go anywhere downtown, you'll see these people. And it's very clear, like it's a very clear minority that's like this. It's not big crowds. It's usually one or a few people out there. But what's interesting to observe is what happens to me, what happens inside of me whenever I encounter people like that. So there was an encounter I had outside of a ABC liquor store, a liquor store we have here in town. Um, we had some family members that came over for uh, some kind of gathering, and I was picking up wine for dinner that evening. And I, you know, I come out of the store, and there's this guy out on the sidewalk, way out in front of the store, the front of the store. It's like 25 yards away. And, you know, he has, you know, his shirt, he, you know, he has a whole getup. He has a shirt with something crossed out on it. He's got a, he's got like a megaphone strapped on like a, like a tactical belt. And he's just going out. He's just going on it. Like, you know, you know, the speech, like he's saying things like drinking is a device of Satan. You know, everybody who drinks alcohol is, uh, you know, subject to the wrath of God and, and is uh, certain for damnation and hell. You get the speech, right? And this guy, he's just going out. Now, what's funny is I walk out of the store, I have, I, I have my wine in hand, and there is nobody around. There's nobody in the parking lot. There's nobody in the front of the store. And this guy, he's just railing on me. Like, it's very clear. He's not making eye contact with me. He's like hiding behind like an electrical box and like a bush. But you know, you know he's talking to me. And, <laughs> and I felt it. I felt it, that vile judgment bubble up inside of me. I found myself thinking, like, this guy doesn't know who I am. Like, this guy, he doesn't know I'm a pastor. Like, I probably know so much more about the Bible than this guy does. Like, he doesn't even have the decency to come talk to me. Yeah, forget that guy. Like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I have my life put together, and you see where I'm at, right? I totally judged that dude. I, I judged him up and down. Like, that guy is backwards. He doesn't know how to communicate with people in a normal, healthy way, right? And the, the reason I bring this up and the reason I'm vulnerable in this way is because oftentimes whenever we think of judgmental people, we think of the, the bigot, the anti-gay, the violent Christian standing out in front of protesters or at funerals or on street corners and just casting judgment, aggressively spilling it out on any bystander that's around to hear them. And what we often don't consider is the subtle judgment that happens in my heart, in your heart, whenever we encounter people like that or other people in our life. Like, do you see what I mean? It says Christian on Christian judgment. 
And it's far grander than any judgment that we can have on people outside of the Christian faith. Like, think about how you consider people who go to a different church than you do. You're driving in your car, and you drive by that church with a different church name than yours, and you find yourself thinking, man, they are so lost in there. I I am so glad that I have my theology figured out 100%. And, And you might be fooling yourself, but you're not fooling Jesus. Like Jesus knows how judgmental we can be. He knows how we can be, but regardless of it, he still puts us together. (laughs) He puts a, a room of judgmental people together and he says, this is how I'm going to build and expand my kingdom through these judgmental people. And he knows the conflict that this would create. And that's why the words, these words of Jesus in our passage this morning, that's why they're so important for us. And if you go and read the very beginning of Matthew chapter 7, and I'm going to read it here in a moment, what you're going to see is that Jesus doesn't say at the end of it, therefore, avoid all hard conversations when things get awkward, when things get difficult, just avoid it at all costs. But rather, he encourages us to move towards each other. But before we even begin to cast judgment on somebody else, we have to do some serious self-reflection. And he knows it's going to be messy. He knows that we can all be judgmental. And if you don't think you're judgmental, maybe you're watching this video and you're like, you know what, that's great for, this is a great lesson for everybody who is a judge, judgmental, but I don't struggle with that. I want you just to think about the people who you think are judgmental. Like, man, I hate bigots. And you're there. Like you do it, just, just like the rest of us. So as was the case last week, it's important for us to define the word like we did with worry last week. It's important for us to define the word like judge, which has a lot of meaning under it. Um, In Greek, the Greek word used um, in our passage this morning is the word krino, and it has a different nuances of meaning depending on the context. Let me read off a couple for you, and you can look them up on your own. We're not going to dive too deep in them. But it it ranges from ordinary discernment or evaluation. You can look up Luke chapter 7, verse 43. Judicial litigation, Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. Bestowal of reward, chapter 19, verse 28 of Matthew. Now here's the key, these two. The pronouncement of guilt, John chapter 7, verse 51. And the absolute determination of a person's fate in our passage this morning. I think it's those latter two that are in view here. Like Jesus wants his disciples, Jesus wants his disciples um, not putting themselves in a seat of pronouncing guilt or judgment on another person, as if that's the final word. It's an absolute judgment that Jesus wants people to avoid. It's, It's this idea that I can take the place of God I can usurper God of his power to judge, and I can take that position for him in determining people's fate and their ultimate destination. Now notice, Jesus. what Jesus is not, he's not talking about observing somebody's behavior, uh, you know, weighing their decisions off your own moral compass and determining their actions as wrong behavior. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Rather, he's talking about something far deeper in the way that we think about a person that's corrosive and destructive. And we all do this. We observe someone's behavior. We observe the clothes that they're wearing. 
We listen to them talk and we hear their rhetoric. And as we do this, we dehumanize them. And that's exactly what Jesus is criticizing here. He's criticizing the way that we don't love our neighbors or our enemies in a way that is charitable towards them. And instead of seeing people's dignity, despite if I agree with what they say or not, instead of seeing their dignity, we define them off of a choice or a a behavior that we disagree with. And they become that person. Can you think of those people in your life? So our text, Jesus says, and he sets up this illustration, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log coming out of your own, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus, he's going for the laugh here, right? Like he wants you to imagine just like a speck of sawdust, just a little bitty thing. We've all had it in our eye. It's this little thing you can barely even see and it gets in your eye and it feels like your eye is like melting because it hurts so bad. Something so small can bring so much pain to your life, right? And then he wants you to imagine in a comical way, a beam just protruding from your face, right? Um, and and Jesus is, is wants us to imagine this like ridiculous image but he wants us to ponder it and think about the implications of a simple image like this. Because the implications have a lot to say for me and my judgment of other people. So first, does the other disciple have something in his eye? Yes. Yes, he does. Like this is not a figment of your imagination, right? There are people in your life who have issues. There's people all around you who have character flaws and they're going to do something mean They're going to do something stupid, and that stuff really happens around us. But before you even think about addressing that, you have a load of a work and adjustment to do in your own life so that the encounter of taking the speck out of their eye is healing and helpful, not destructive and counterproductive. And I'll show you what I mean in in, uh, the implications of this image. So I think there are three implications that we can pull out of this simple little image that Jesus gave us of this log in someone's eye or my eye and a speck in my brother's. And one is that I cannot see clearly with my own eye issues. So which part of your body do you perceive the speck in your brother's eye? your eye, right? Where is the beam protruding from? That same eye. And this is intentional by Jesus. Like he wants us to realize and assume that our vision is impaired. Like I do have a problem and we all have our own problems and sins and issues in life. And so what I have to first and foremost do is that is recognize my disability to see clearly. Like, I have my own problems. And this is something that I'm beginning to teach my boys, right? Um, As they're moving into higher levels of grade school, um, where the, the chances of being bullied are like skyrocketing, right? Is that, yes, people are gonna be hurtful. Yes, people are gonna make mistakes. Yes, you are probably gonna play victim to somebody. But just remember, you are seeing somebody's behavior. You're not seeing their motivation or the story behind that behavior. Like you don't know what that boy is dealing with at home. You don't don't know the kind of love he's not receiving or how hungry he goes at night 
or what he has witnessed his entire life. You don't know those things. And we're all running around this world. We're bumping into each other and we're interacting with other people's actions and other people's words. And humans are extremely complicated. And our motives are deeply rooted on why I say the things I say, why I do the things that I do. And what Jesus is saying is that you cannot assume that you see 100% clarity of somebody else's story and somebody else's life and why they do the things that they do. It doesn't mean their behavior is right. It doesn't mean they're making a right choice. But we have to first and foremost take the position that we don't see their story entirely. And that takes humility. It takes reflection. It takes a moment to to allow myself to be truly centered in God, not my identity and not my reputation with others. So the second implication now, uh, and the second implication, it takes us straight into the heart of the gospel and the kingdom of God. So the first implication is that I can't see anything clearly with my own eye issues. The second implication automatically assumes that my brother has an issue, but my issue is far more critical than theirs is. Like my self-worth issues, my pride issues, my anger issues, they're far more serious, they're far more grievous than the person I am observing. You see, we have a tendency to show arrogance towards others and ignorance towards ourselves. Like we exonerate ourselves because we know, or we, we kind of know, our motives for doing things. But we do not know other people's motives and why they do things. And so Jesus wants me to assume here that I have my own issues and they are far more serious than my brother's issues. And Jesus is not encouraging me towards self-loathing or self-hatred, like, oh man, I just have all these problems and nobody can save me from them. Nobody's pushing us to do what all disciples of Jesus should do, spend serious moments of self-reflection. And what that does is it forces me into the heart of the gospel. Rather than pushing and shoving it on other people, I have to go in and do some real heart work and self-observation for myself. I have to go into the, the gospel and do work myself. And that leads us to the third implication of where we are placed in this entire interaction. So the third implication is that I have something in my eye, therefore I too am, am being judged by the clear-eyed Jesus. You know, we have a tendency when we're observing people's flaws and whenever we're casting judgment on them, we have a tendency to create dividing lines between us and them. And almost subconsciously, we have these little conversations with us and with Jesus. It's like, we're on this side of the line, that person over there has that issue and they're that kind of person. And we have this little conversation like Jesus, like, look at this guy, like he's totally lame, right? Like, look at all the mistakes he's making. And then, we, it's like we take it a step further and we, we play the part of Jesus and we, we voice Jesus and say, yeah, he is totally lame. Like he is totally making choice. Like, do you see what I'm saying? It's a self-justifying process where we think it's us and Jesus over here and that person over there. And then we begin to give, we begin to determine how Jesus views that person. We make that judgment. We determine how Jesus feels about them. But looking at the portrait that Jesus has given us here, 
putting size to the side, who has something in their eye? It's both you and the person. Like it's not you and Jesus over here addressing the issue of somebody else, but rather Jesus is repositioning you. So it's you over here with the problem and Jesus over there. And he is the only one who has clear enough vision to make judgment and condemnation, but he chooses not to. Jesus is the only one qualified to actually judge and condemn people. But if you read the stories where he interacts with people who have beams sticking out of their eye, he always approaches people with grace and love, the grace and love that I was unwilling to extend to people. And that's the gospel message. Like the clear-eyed Jesus had every right to condemn me for the beam sticking out of my eye, and yet he gave his life to save me from it. He took that beam upon himself. And that story and that reality has the ability to utterly change a human being. So have you ever considered that in this moment, if you're gathered with a few people listening to this sermon, worshiping in this way, have you ever considered um, and you, that we are living out the reality of this story together? So imagine, so if you're watching this, you're not at church with us. Um, I kind of make a joke on Sunday that I'm trying to get the people to imagine they're at church and they're sitting in the pews. But for you, you can really do this exercise. Imagine you are at church, right? You are with all of the people and you come into the sanctuary every week with your deepest secrets locked away in your heart. Like the things that you have kept hidden, the things you deeply regret, you have them locked away and you, you keep them from being exposed. Now imagine the nightmare scenario that you come into church the next time you come and the thing that you have kept hidden for so long is exposed for everybody in the room. Like for some of us to even think about that, we begin to sweat. <laughs> like the thing that I've guarded away from people that will ruin my reputation, that will ruin people's confidence in me. If that was highlighted, like I'd get out of there. Like I don't wanna be in this scenario, right? But the reality is that Jesus, what Jesus is inviting us into every time we gather is our nightmare come true. Like we believe Jesus, like we believe in Jesus at our church and we believe in the words that he says, where he says, where three or more gathered, I am in their midst, I am with them. And we believe in ways that we are unable to understand that when we gather as a church, Jesus is in our midst. And if you ever read about interaction Jesus has with people throughout his earthly ministry, before he has even met them, before they have shared anything with him, it's like he has read their mail. He knows the questions before they ask them. He knows, uh, he knows their thoughts before they even have it out of their mouth. He knows their sin before it's ever revealed to him. And despite all of this, like it, it's like he's reading their mail, right? Um, and he, he knows all of their problems before they even get them out. And that's the Jesus that we believe is worshiping with us on Sunday. Like it is our nightmare come true. Everything is revealed in its fullest. My secrets are known. They're made known to, to me every time that we gather, but they're also made known to everybody and Jesus himself. Like I am fully exposed for the sinner that I am whenever we gather. 
But if you pay attention to how Jesus, how Jesus interacts with people who approach him, hands open, I'm willing to expose themselves for who they are. He receives them with grace and compassion. And that's true for you as well. And that's good news for people like you and me. And here's what I mean by all of that. Like whenever we come to church on Sunday morning, we're not coming to an event. Like we are participating in an announcement, especially whenever we gather around the table, which is what I'm kind of leading us into right now. You see, whenever we partake in the bread and the juice every week, like we are proclaiming, like I am a follower of Jesus and I am, I am adjusting my life and drifting towards him to follow him at an even grander level. But whenever we hold the symbols, what we're also announcing is, hey, everybody in the room, I need this. I need this. Hey, everybody, I have a huge beams protruding from my eye. I need this. Like my life is so shot that I actually need somebody else's life to account for mine. I am so messed up that I actually need somebody to die for me to save me. I've blown this life. It's completely blown up. And it's something that we announce every single week when we take part in the meal. It's our deepest regrets fully exposed. But the, the amazing thing is, is Jesus knows these things. He's in our midst. He knows the deepest part of our regrets and our brokenness. And he doesn't condemn us or judge us like the way we deserve, but he is willing to give his life for us and willing to make us clean despite of it. And what that reality does is it denies me. It denies me any right to judge other people in my life who I don't agree with their choices I don't agree with their behaviors before I do some self-reflection and realize my own brokenness and need for God's grace. Like if you spend a moment considering what that means for our community, it will put you in a remarkable place this moment, this morning, right? The meal, it utterly changes the dynamic in a community of Jesus's disciples. Like all of a sudden it turns from a community where we're against each other to where we're rooting for each other and we're with each other. And this parable, it doesn't end with both people leaving this interaction and intervention disgruntled and avoiding it altogether. Like people don't just walk away from this, this interaction saying, you know what? That was a bad idea. I'm too judgmental. I don't want to go into difficult places, but rather Jesus pushes us together, have these difficult conversations because the most difficult part has already been taken care of. The most difficult thing for us to do is to be vulnerable with each other, for us to recognize that, or for us to admit to other people that I don't have my life figured out that I don't have this whole thing figured out, that I need somebody else to save me. And at the meal, that, that proclamation's already been made. We've already admitted, I have a beam in my eye. So we can enter into hard conversations knowing the hard work has already been done for us. We've already been saved, or we've already confessed to the brokenness that we are and the need for Jesus, and we've already been cleansed and made clean by Him. I have a huge beam in my eye. I need Jesus, right? If your friend needs you to get the speck out of their eye, who do you need to get the beam out of your own? And so this meal, it creates a space for messy grace. Your neighbor needs you. You need Jesus. We all need each other. It's messy grace, but it's a beautiful mess. And that's what this meal, the Lord's Supper, invites us to participate in.
So as we take the meal together, if you take it with those that you're with this morning, be reminded this isn't a vertical moment. This isn't a horizontal moment. This is like a circle or a triangle. Like we need each other. We need each other to set each other right, to get the specks out of each other's eyes. I need Jesus to get the beam out of my own. We all need Jesus in this moment of saving grace. It is a, it is a, a moment where we have, we're completely vulnerable to God's judgment and condemnation. And he says, I love you regardless, and I'm taking it from you. It's the kind of grace that we need. It's the kind of grace that we should be extending to other people. It's a grace that revolves around Jesus' sacrifice. And that's what we need.